Let us pray. Father God, as we come before your word this morning, through the power of your Spirit, give us a reverence and an awe for it. Help us to hear what you want us to hear. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What was your reaction to singing the Ten Commandments? We just sang through the passage. Actually, when I first kind of laid out the bulletin, I thought of just reading the entire chapter, but I think it's more appropriate that we were to sing through the commandments, especially in light of this passage, because in this passage we see the reaction of the first congregation of God. The congregation of Israel's reaction in in first hearing the words of God in the commandments. And it was not a reaction of song. It wasn't something um, of high praise. But actually, as we just read in the passage, it was a, a rejection. There was actually a callousness, a hardness that that we're going to kind of explore. In one sense, it's not so different than after uh, our first parents transgressed the law. They were made aware of their nakedness uh, and, and a sense of the holiness of God and the lack of holiness that they had, and they sought to make a, a covering for their nakedness in themselves. And yet that covering wasn't enough. And yet they, they now feared the Word of God. They now did not want to come and be in the presence of God because they, they knew their nakedness and they knew shame. Now I'm just going to say from the start, there are a lot of ways that reform pastors, there's a lot of camps and how they break down these passages and, and it can get really technical. But, but really for today's sermon, if you want a more technical discussion, of course I'm available in the fellowship hour after worship, but the fellowship time. But I just want us to sit in the reaction and in the moment uh, of this text to how the people respond to hearing God's commandments. You know, this is a a group of people that just a chapter ago, in chapter 19, verse 8, said, we will do everything the Lord says. They have this great ambition of their ability to, to kind of boldly go forth to what God calls them to. And now that God has basically summarized what He wants them to do, They now want a safe barrier between God and themselves. And they're so convinced uh, that they want to get away from this God that they even let Moses know, hey Moses, you're fine to talk to us. You you can continue to speak to us about God, but, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. And in their response, we should actually ask ourselves, 
How do we respond when we're confronted with the law? It's fair to say that the law often creates tension even in the community of Christians, in our lives as Christians, like few things can. There is a human pattern of not wanting to be convicted of sin and even of not wanting to behold the sheer holiness of God. And again, this is a pattern. It's a pattern that humanity has embraced ever since Adam's fall. And yet the thing is, if you remember those two verses that we read at the start of chapter 20, God's gone out of His way even before giving the law to make clear that He saved them. That He's a redeeming God. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, establishing with those with ears to hear that these commandments given are not meant to be these individualistic hurdles we must perfectly jump over in order to be saved by God in this life, but these commandments were to be hurdles we strive to jump over because we've already been saved by the God who loved us first. And, and we got to avoid a temptation that's very common in, in Christian circles to, to really try to create a strong division of how you know, Israel as a congregation reacts to hearing the law and, and how we wise Christians might react to hearing the law because there's actually a lot of similarities we carry with this congregation, this first congregation of the Lord in the wilderness. For instance, the Israelites were saved from slavery in Egypt. Christians are saved, uh, saved from slavery to sin. The Israelites were redeemed by the blood of the Passover lamb. Christians are redeemed by the blood of Christ, the Passover lamb of God. The Israelites passed through the Red Sea to freedom. Christians experienced new life through baptism. The Israelites were led by pillars of cloud and fire. Christians are led by the Holy Spirit. The Israelites were called God's treasured possession. Christians, we are called children of the living God. The Israelites entered a covenant with God in Sinai. Christians enter a new covenant with Christ at Calvary. Israelites were given the Torah to instruct them. Christians are guided by the full word of God to instruct them. The Israelites experience God's provision of manna and water. Christians experience God's daily bread. The Israelites were called to live holy lives. Christians are called to pursue sanctification and desire to live a holy life. The Israelites were disciplined for disobedience. Christians experience God's loving discipline at times when we stray. The Israelites were called to trust and obey God. Christians are called by faith in Christ to trust and obey God. Israelites were called to be God's witnesses. Christians are called to be Christ's witnesses here on earth. The Israelites at Sinai awaited a greater promised land. Christians await an eternal promised land. The Israelites were called to live differently than other nations. Christians are called to live differently in the midst of the nations. The Israelites were chosen by grace, and Christians were chosen by God's grace. And yet, 
while we can accept that, while we can say, yes, we see all the links, we see all the parallels, we see all those connections, by the time God is done speaking about His law, what does it do to the congregation of God's people in regards to God? They don't want to hear Him anymore. They're actually afraid of God. We can see this in verse 18. We have people trembling and they're moving away from God. And, and the thing is, it's actually popular in this verse 18 to, to kind of defend their fear. I mean, we have flashes of lightning, thunder, trumpets, darkness, smoke. And there's a whole branch of theology that basically kind of says, yeah, they were kind of right to be afraid. And, and there is a sense in which the holiness of God and the reality of God's awesomeness and His righteous statutes and how far we fall short of that does create a, can create a good fear. But Moses will not identify their fear as a good fear. But even more than that, this is not the first time in Scripture where, some, where God has presented Himself in this way. Actually, the, the Hebrew word for lightning there is lapid. And that word is used, the previous time it was used was back in Genesis 15. When God presented Himself to Abraham, and, and lightning there is translated as torch in chapter uh, 15 of Genesis in the ESV, but, but the word is the same. God presents His lighted presence, smoking, and, it, and there's smoke, and there's, there's darkness, and there's this presence of God in that moment. And where God basically tells Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make promises to you and assurances to you that you're going to live and die before they ever come to pass. But even if I have to die in order to accomplish these things, Abraham, I'm going to do it. Because I love you that much. And, and Jesus tells us later in John, or as he's talking to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, that Abraham delighted. Abraham had joy in coming to hear this. That in coming to see God in this similar manner that Moses describes God's coming on Mount Sinai, that Abraham was to see joy and was able to see joy. And I would venture to actually say this passage shows us that Moses can see joy that this congregation utterly misses. So here's the rub. What's going on with the congregation that's rejecting God coming to them? Because Abraham never got to witness the miracles and the amazing things that these people have witnessed, that this congregation got to see. And yet this congregation found a reason to reject God. And consider how awful things get 
for them to be comfortable with saying, I don't want God to talk to me anymore. Think about the times in your life where maybe you've heard that from somebody or you've said that to somebody. How actually terrible that kind of moment is. What an actual breakdown of communication that is. And this is, this is the thing about this passage. The next two verses will make clear after this request is made. God's still present there. God hasn't like disappeared and, and, and the people are talking with Moses in that moment and saying, you know, when God was here, it was a little uncomfortable. Can we just, can we just talk with you? No. The God who saved them, the God who's offered them salvation is present with them, and they say in his presence, we don't want to talk to you face to face. Moses, if you speak to us, we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. We don't want to hear from the Lord anymore. Do you think that idea still happens today with congregations? Seemingly can. When I drive around the broader area, it becomes a, a badge of honor for a lot of churches to have some sort of symbol, some sort of thing on their sign that basically says, don't worry. In here, we're not going to take that law thing too seriously. We're, we're going to celebrate. We're going to have pride in things God says He hates. And we have to really consider what the Bible is trying to teach us here. Because that sounds easier at first. To say to God, I don't want to hear from your word, it's too hard. I don't want to hear from your word, it's too inconvenient. I don't want to hear from your word, it's too troubling. And yet that is a way of death to the relationship and separation. And for the remainder of the time in the wilderness, there is going to be a struggle for the people. Now, God is gracious in this moment. That's the thing. God could have just wiped out the people at this kind of reaction, but actually God will graciously use this moment to display more of what the gospel ultimately promises. And to, to, to pull back another layer for us, and he will allow Moses, their requested mediator, to function as a mediator. But we should appreciate this moment. We shouldn't just run to the idea right away of a mediator because just look at the reaction of Moses himself. Moses himself, when the people are trying to encourage him to be the mediator, let's consider his words. He says, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. 
And it seems like actually a contradiction at first. He tells them not to fear so they can fear. But it's because there's two kinds of fear. There's a fear in which immobilizes us. There's a fear of God that causes us to to forsake God, to leave God. For instance, if you think about uh, Abraham. What were the two times that Abraham failed to fear God? And because he failed to fear God, he dishonored his bride. It was before the two kings. He had more of a fear of this life and losing this life than a fear of the holiness and reverence of God. A God who's already given him wonderful promises and assurance and it causes him to sin. Whereas when God calls him to another difficult moment with his son, his one and only son, He properly has a fear, an awe of the Lord in that moment which he tells even the servants, my son and I will be back. Even if I have to go through with this, I know God's word and I know God's promises. I know God's assurances. There is a good kind of fear of God that leads us to greater obedience and that's the kind of fear that Moses is calling the people to. He's actually in one sense saying, see God in this word has called you into a holy reverence and awe and yet what you're doing is you're giving in to the fear that this God is out to get you. In one sense it's like they're repeating the sin of Exodus chapter 17 where Remember, they convinced themselves that God was trying to kill them in dehydration of basically not giving them water. They've given in again to a sinful kind of fear. And Moses says, don't do that. And so... A problem now exists between God's congregation and God. They find God so terrifying that God is graciously going to allow them to use a mediator who the people will not find so terrifying. And that's because He is a gentle God. He's a compassionate God. And we are 20 chapters into the most miraculous book in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures. And while all these people of God, this congregation has seen God's saving hand in a variety of incredible ways, they still haven't figured out that they don't need to be afraid of God. This God in their midst has shown them that neither Pharaoh's oppression nor the rigors of slavery, nor the might of Egypt, nor the wrath of the plagues, nor the danger of pursuit, nor the trials of the wilderness, nor hunger or thirst, nor hardship or want, nor anything else under heaven will be able to separate the people of Israel from the covenant love of God, their Redeemer who brought them out of Egypt with the outstretched arm. Which 
is similar to something we're told in Romans chapter 8. And yet, even though this is true, they still fear that this God might kill them. They still fear that this law is just a, a way to destroy them. And they don't want to talk to God directly anymore. They want a mediator instead. And Moses tries to change their mind, and yet we can see from verse 21 they will not relent. Moses' words do not change the congregation's opinion on this matter. And then something truly hap amazing happens when the people recoil in chapter, verse 21, when they abandon their Lord in fear. The mediator persists in going forward into the darkness. The Hebrew word here of this dividing wall of darkness, it's a weird image for God. God we, we think of as, as light, and yet there's this darkened barrier around God, and the mediator goes through this dark dividing wall of hostility in order that he might be in God's presence and break down that wall of hostility towards God's law, and the mediator will come back. And, and now he will speak to us, and he will share more of God's law. God will use this mediator to speak to us. And this is nothing less than a clear foreshadowing and anticipation of the greater mediator God himself, who Moses makes clear in this passage, always really should have been our first desire. How he would one day, as his followers who had been walking with him for years, utterly gave in to their own fears. The disciples scattered. They drew away from him in the dark hour. As the dark hour approached, the Greek mediator would establish a covenant bond forever that would never fail us, by moving through the darkness of death. And now we have a God through Christ who, who is our mediator, and that mediator allows us to have fellowship with God in a unique way. See, God uses His mediators not to just abolish the law, but in order that we might better appreciate and apprehend the law of God. So that people can hear the, the law after they know they have been saved and desire out of love for the mediator to be more faithful to it. And this actual section that we're moving into, starting in verse 22, is really a, sub, a section summed up very well in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 1, by the four verbs that Moses will later use to describe what we are to think of or how we are to respond to the law. We're supposed to hear it. We're supposed to learn it. We're supposed to keep it. We're supposed to do it. We're supposed to hear it. We're supposed to learn it. We're supposed to keep it. We're supposed to do it. Not so that we are saved, but because we are saved. And in verse 23, we see God in this desire that He has to be with His people, expresses now through the mediator, 
that he, express, he appreciates simplicity and exclusivity when it comes to worship of him. Now, we often gravitate towards elaborate and novel. That's not what God prefers. He prefers simplicity and exclusivity. We aren't to bring any other false gods or idols into the worship of him. We're especially not to make him in silver and gold. I'm sure the people at Sinai will have no problem with that, not making God into an idol of gold. But we must be careful with what worship looks like here because God prefers a long, faithful, sustained pattern of worship rather than trying to blaze creative new trails. And God makes clear in this moment the ideal altar he has in mind, the perfect kind of sacrifice he has in mind, uh, is, is an altar made with simple earth itself. God's saying, I, wanna, I want an altar basically that's humble and natural. It doesn't need all these elaborate steps. It needs to have these natural and humble origins. And it's an interesting thing. It's, it's actually a little bit of a head-scratcher theologically with the rest of the Old Testament because in a few short chapters, God's going to have these people make an altar for the tabernacle. And, and it will start with fashion with wood. And, and while it doesn't have silver and gold, it's going to get covered in bronze. And it's, it's going to be ornate and have, uh, be very elaborate. And eventually there's going to be a temple with steps leading up to it. And, and it creates a tension that often a lot of theologians just like to skip over. I actually think, and, and we'll, we'll get there, the New Testament answers very clearly how we're supposed to appreciate this altar. But it seems to present this slight conflict with what God is laying out to Moses as the ideal altar as these people are rejecting him. And the altars that will develop after in the Hebrew Scriptures. I mean, even in Jesus' day, why do even Jews still to this day call Herod, Herod the Great? Because he covered the temple in gold. And you do that, boy, people will get excited. And yet here, as God's just been rejected by his people, talking about what proper worship is like, his ideal altar is where a sacrifice is made with a natural quality about it, a humble reality about it. And even the words that God uses about how you get to make an offering at this altar, uh, God is very clear He's going to be the cause and the root of all these offerings, that He will cause His name to be remembered, that He will come to bless us, that He will come to, um, to us personally. This humble, natural altar where God will meet His people is an altar where all that is good and pleasing about it will be due to the leading and guiding hand of God helping his people who would rather forget him to remember him. And even the stones of this perfect altar, they cannot be hewn stones. Basically, they can't be carved out. And again, this is a conflict because all of the stones in the, in the temple will be stones that are hewn out of rock. Now, we can learn in places like 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7, or 1 Kings chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, that... They, they hewn the stones that made out the temple without an earshot 
now think of this, out of earshot of God. They did it at a distance from the temple so, so God wouldn't hear. But they were cut by human hands. So cutting the, the, the stone off site, it doesn't really lead to this kind of altar that's being talked about. It's not really the altar that perfectly fits its description. And another thing about this altar, it's not supposed to have a single stair, but again, in the temple, there will be stairs. But these stairs are, are so that the nakedness of the people might not be exposed. And so if you really want to be like Old Testament literal, you start talking about stairs as maybe being a ladder and, and don't climb up in a ladder because uh, you could accidentally flash someone. But I don't think that's what's being said here. If you haven't caught on yet, the altar God's suggesting as his favorite kind of altar has some noticeable differences with the altars that will come in the Old Covenant community. And so what's important about our nakedness and going before this altar in nakedness? One way to figure out what Moses might be getting at, who's the writer of this and also the writer of the first book of the Bible, is to consider when nakedness is used previously in the scriptures. When our first parents had an awareness of their nakedness, what problem was present with them? The, the problem of sin. And when it's used at the time of Noah again, when, when Ham sees his father's nakedness, what problem do we realize still was present on the ark? The problem of sin. And so what I'm trying to suggest to you is the perfect altar of God is an altar you can go before and not have to worry about your nakedness being exposed. That's what God is now having Moses share with the people who rejected him at first. And that's the kind of altar we all need. And that's the kind of altar that when we go before it, it would change us. So that we would no longer want to fear God or draw further away from Him. But when we hear His Word, we want to come to better understand what He's saying and, and live by His Word and appreciate His law. And a love like that is a love that can even allow us to face the darkness. We can pursue God if we can find an altar like this one. And maybe you think I'm off track the last couple minutes. Maybe you think I'm overreading the text, and that's possible. I must admit. But I want to leave you with the words from Apostle Peter in his first letter. And I want you to consider them. And I want you to hear this humble, natural altar where people can come before without fear of their nakedness being exposed. I begin in 1 Peter, verse 22, and I'll read through 2.11. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God, the Lord, remains forever. And this word 
is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You want to know what the law is about? The law is about becoming more of what you and I were called to naturally be. It's when we sit under the law, we allow it to shape our lives. We allow God's work, uh, natural work, flow and to create in us through the power of the Spirit uh, something that is good for use to build up God's kingdom. So we are called to hear the law of God, to learn it, to keep it, to do it. The law is not about being forced to sacrifice for God. The law is not something we need to fear and be afraid of, but rather the law is about God allowing himself to be sacrificed so, for us so that we no longer need to reject him and reject his law, that we'd actually desire to live for him and live as instruments of his law. So let us take a forward, a forward step in our faith walk. Let us take a step out of the present darkness before our life and in our conduct and enter more fully into the saving light and presence of our sacrificial God. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we were in darkness and we did not want to draw near. And so while at Sinai, you drew back until the mediator, who was your son, your only son, and our Lord, would come for us, we thank you that you did come for us, Lord. 
that you have saved us and that while we might not follow a pillar of cloud and fire, we follow, Lord, at our best, the leadings of your Spirit. Help us to continue to be people who grow in being led by your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let us take a moment quietly and privately to confess our sins before the Lord.